Welcome to the Actionable Futurist Podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. My guest today is Hannah Greenwood, who is an international leadership speaker, coach and writer who works with individuals and global teams to facilitate creative inquiry and implement change. She founded Cascade over 18 years ago and specialises in developing the champion mindset, the alchemic combination of innovative thinking and a positive energy. Cascade's champion mindset has helped individuals and companies achieve extraordinary things by harnessing the potential of true change. Hannah is an associate at London Business School and was formerly head of counselling courses at the Metonia Training Institute for Psychotherapy and an adjunct professor at Holt International Business School teaching the MBA leadership module. She combines her leadership, teaching and therapeutic expertise to enable individuals to engage with their passion and to achieve excellence in their chosen field. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Now, we should explain to our listeners, most people I interview, I have some connection with, and we have an amazing serendipitous connection. We met through our mutual, amazing mutual friend, Sue Walter, who was on the show back in season three. What I didn't realize until we met a few months ago is that, thanks to Sue, we're both the members of the hospital club, where Sue was CEO for some time, and I have no idea why it took us over a decade to meet. I know. But there must have been many times we were there uh, and and on the same floor, dancing, film, whatever. But no, it took till that, that evening. The other bit of serendipity and how friendships and relationships cross over, we met at another mutual friend's restaurant there at Feast up in St. John's Wood run by Maggie Bolger. This is where you told me about how the name of your company, Cascade, came about. It's an amazing story. I'd love to kick off with that. It was in August 2003. Uh, so that's kind of coming up to 19 years ago. And um, I was holidaying in France. It was the end of August with my family. And there was a family home there. Um, and the next day, I was going to fly to Niagara Falls to, uh, to, to be on a leadership program, work on a leadership program through London Business School. Um, and I was really excited. Because I'd never been to Niagara Falls before. I love water anyway, and this was very exciting. And um, and that night, the night before I flew, I had this very powerful dream that I remember to this day. And the dream was I was in, um, it was going inside of this space, beautiful, huge space. It was an inner building. Um, and very big mirrors. It was by a, by a lake. Um, very beautiful, very minimalist. So it's this cool, minimalist, open space um, and very clean. It was very clean and white. Um, and there was this big staircase, I remember, kind of like big spiral staircase. And in the middle of this gorgeous space was this huge waterfall that was coming straight at me. And it was sort of like suspended. So it was a huge torrent waterfall and it was just at me actually sort of coming at me and I'm I felt terrified of the power of this thing but also deeply um exhilarated and excited um so 
as I say, you can hear it as I talk. This has never, never left me, this image. So the next day off I went to, um, flew over to Niagara Falls. And it was that week that um, what's now Cascade was was formed and, and thought of. And it, there was a, uh, it was something around coaching. It was with a couple of our colleagues. Um, so we created it that week. And, and over the next few months, I was trying to find a name for it. And I wanted partly the French influence. I have French ancestors um and i wanted i loved the word cascade which is waterfall in french but if you say it as it's spelled in french it's cascade which is awful so that's how the cascade and i I put a tilde in for the short a so that's how cascade was born that's a very powerful dream and clearly it was a, a message from from above to say this is what you need to do next so you describe what you do next is creating meaningful change for movers and shakers and i love that how do you do that Last couple of years, I began to think, what are my clients? How would I uh, describe them? And the, the key term I use is they are change agent leaders. Um, now, they might be rising stars, so they might not be actually um, having huge teams, but a lot of them do have big teams and are change agent leaders. So the commonality is very much about that that change and um and because a lot of what i'm about is about creating change and meaningful change i was kind of thinking so what is that about and what i find is a lot of people who are great their work is change creating change um they're brilliant about doing unto whether it's an organization or a thing or a person but not so great about themselves and the key premise of how I was trained as a psychotherapist and, and, and now as a coach is that we have to start with ourselves. So that meaningful change has to be deeply transformational. We have to look to ourselves. And it's it's very much, that, that's what's very um, challenging for a leader. Uh, and I know we're going to be talking about the future of leadership, but it is one of, we can't hide. We've got to be, we've got to be, be, be real, authentic, who we are. And through that, that's the meaningful change. I can talk more about that, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm about with that. I suppose it takes a very brave or very self-aware leader to say, hand up. I actually can't do this on my own. I need to get some professional help, coaching, advice. If I look at people I've worked with over my career, none of them would ever put their hand up. They would have gone, but but I don't need help. I'm doing a great job. I've got a team. I'm busy. I've got revenue, everything else. What is the point where someone goes, yeah, I, I can actually be even better. I need some help from my Hannah superpower. 20 years I've been in, in the business of coaching. It's changed enormously now it's partly i suppose i'm working with more senior people but i think anyway coaching has changed so when i first started it was about fixing it was about what's wrong with you let's let's fix you now of course there are people coaches where that will happen but but what i find with my clients they don't need fixing um it's the whole concept of changing has helped. The whole concept, sorry, the whole concept of coaching has, has has changed. There's the whole sense of, um, I suppose, like with psychotherapy or therapy generally, there's less shame about asking for help. I think women, we've always been much better, at, you know, kind of from early age trained. So it's part, part of the survival, actually, to, to to have to ask for help. Men, it's been a huge shame thing too to ask for help that you can't do it all by yourself. And this is one of the changes I've seen with men is partly the stigma for coaching is has has changed and men of themselves are changing so they're able to reach out. And actually, I would say now, there's a kind of cachet 
um, element of, hey, I've got my coach. Um, so I'm really seeing a big change in that. Now, you talk about the champion mindset. I'm looking at a diagram here from your website. I think I understand it, but how could you paint a word picture for our listeners about what a champion mindset is and why we need one? When I was thinking about this question that you asked me, um, and it's something I've been mulling over the last two or three years, particularly right now, we're in a very aggressive place in the world. Um, so I was thinking, do we? Do I really want to keep using the word champion? Is it too aggressive? Is it too individualistic? Um, and I had to deep think about that. And actually, I came up with, yes, I do. But I'm using it. If you, if you, if you change it from the noun to the verb, and you start to look at the concept of two champion, um, then immediately it has a different flavor to it. It's that, that's a different energy, doesn't it? And it's not about just me, 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 and what, you know, I want to be the best. And um, it's about how can I champion for others, be the best champion for others. So within that mindset, uh, what I mean by that, it's a, it's a combination of an innovative mindset so that agile, able to respond flexibly, able to be really open, to keep growing, to keep learning. Um, it's also an authentic, positive energy. And I, I, I talk a lot about this. It's not what I call cheerleader, rah, rah, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, just because that is, that drives us nuts. But it is about to have that deep, authentic um, willingness, consciousness, to stay with that positive, to, yeah. I'm sort of hesitating there because one of the, the words that kept coming, I was thinking about what is my brand? One of the key words I would use is hope. And it's about bringing hope. And I, I've been saying for, for some time with leaders, when I'm teaching leaders, I'm saying the key task of a leader is to bring hope. And what we mean by hope is a promise of a better future. Uh, and never <laughs> the last, you know, for most of us in our lifetime, uh, over the last two years and ongoing, do we need that? And that's very challenging to, to find that in ourselves. Just want to pick up on one word you use there is agile. Now, I overuse that word because I talk about having an agile mindset. Agile methodology comes from software development where you have scrums and, and squads and you have stand up meetings. And I'm always telling my clients, you need to be more agile. And I'm just wondering whether it's falling on deaf ears because what does it mean to be more agile in a leadership sense? I'm going to talk about left brain, right brain. There's a lot of like it doesn't this, whatever. But if we just say even as a metaphor and we kind of look at the different hemispheres in our brain and it's great as a metaphor. So if we're looking at the, the left brain, which is very much about organizing, about um, implementing, the doing, uh, and the right brain, again, metaphorically or, or for real, it's, it's about the imagination, the, the creative blue sky thinking, all of that. I used to be very democratic. I'm still democratic, but I used to say, oh, we need both left brain, right brain equally. They're both. I now say we do need both, but actually the right brain dominates in terms, I'm talking about leadership here. Yeah. So if we are left brain, that's what we call the managerial mindset. So it's the doer, the implementer. The right brain is this leadership champion mindset. And it is this ability to be open to think, to go beyond. So when we're talking about the agile mindset, the innovative mindset, um, that's what we're talking about. It is about imagination. It, by the way, I talked about hope before. The only place where hope rests is in that agile imaginative because it's about the future it's about possibility um now what we can do about it is a lot it's, it's where we have to up our creativity these things aren't just nice you know little sideways hobbies or whatever 
massively important. There's a lot we can do, like muscle in our, you know, that, that we need to develop. I want to touch on teams and tribes. I talk about teams and tribes a lot. I've run teams, I've run tribes. I've read about your views on the tribal mindset and you talk about the five-day leadership course you run at London Business School and the arc dynamic that you use. I've often likened the forming of a team, friendship or relationship to that of the group development theory first proposed by Bruce Tuckman in 1965 of forming, storming, norming and performing. So first of all, is this still how you see teams behave? And second question, how do we get them from forming to performing much faster? Great question. So uh, I do call it an arc, um, and I do. There's a lot you can do, and it's an extraordinary experience in creating any team from a group. Really, um, the bit around the um, do those stages is, of course, they exist, but it's a bit like the grief cycle. I think we'd say they're not just neat, compartmentalized, you know, linear. So, so we will go in and out, and, and if we're not working in stage or we avoid conflict for example the storming say boy will we go back and have to deal with that so it's a very flip they're useful just to have a sense of what are the dynamics uh, so so yeah that's what i see um definitely we can we can go through faster to that performing stage but with but what we can't do is cut through any of the the storming or the bonding or any of that, yeah, the forming stuff. So, so it's just, and the key to, to get through, and I, gosh, I've been working with groups for 30 years, different types of, of groups. Uh, I love groups. I know we're going to come to this, but I've so deeply, deeply, deeply missed professionally. If you said, what's the one thing you've missed over the pandemic? It's working with teams because that's one of the key things I do. Deeply missed it. Um, and yes, you can. So, so what you do in terms of, I'm hesitating to use the word fast track because, again, I don't want to skim surface because to really create a great team, you've got to go deep. You've got to go into that transformational change with them. But it's all about trust. So so the key to it is what you do to, to create that trust fast. And actually, that comes about down to authenticity and to you being authentic yourself. I want to share this story back from my MBA class back in Sydney, because I'm wondering if you've had a similar experience at London Business School. So one of the leadership course sessions, it was probably the third or fourth in the semester, the lecturer literally came in with an envelope and then left the room. And we just learned about forming, storming, norming, performing. I waited as probably the A-type person in the room. I thought, no, I'm not going to lead. There are 18 other people. Let's give someone else a chance to lead. And after five minutes, I went, okay, (laughs) ripped open the envelope. And there was an exercise. And the exercise essentially was to run some string around the room. Over the course of the, I think it was probably three hours, it was an evening class, we formed Storm Norman Performed. And there were fights that broke out and all that sort of thing. And I was just thinking, I'm in the metaverse because we've just learned about forming, storming, norming, performing. We'd been set an exercise to do it. It was obvious this is what was going on, but it still happened. Does this happen in your classes or was I just unique? Definitely. It's funny, isn't it? you, you, you get your theory and then you think, right, is, is this going to happen or whatever? And then to experience, and of course, that's the experiential learning, isn't it? This is how we, how we learn best. And it's always, it's that wow moment, isn't it? It's when, oh, this isn't just, you know, abstract theory or whatever. This is real. But the thing was, I actually told the class, don't you realise this is what's going on? It was just (laughs) surreal anyway. And you've not forgotten it. I've not forgotten it. It was probably back in 1997. I can remember as clear as day. I even remember the room. I remember the fluorescent lines, how the tables were set up. It is etched on my brain because it was such a teaching moment for me. I will never forget it. And if you just sat there, you know, fantastic professors listening to the words, 
you'd have sort of vaguely remembered it, but not made sense of it until you were in that situation, you know, a year, whatever later. But because it happened then, you've never forgotten it. But the other teaching moment was I held back because I could have jumped in and I could have said, this is what's going on. This is what's going to happen. I wanted to wait to see if someone else wanted to pick up the bat. And when they didn't, it was like, okay, someone has to lead. It's going to have to be me. But I need to lead sensitively because happening in real time is a teaching moment. The lecturer is in the corner watching us basically flounder. I don't want to overpower things, but someone has to get up the front and make a decision. And, and that for me, and I've been a leader many years since then in my career, I've always gone back to that. How do I lead so I'm not annoying the people I'm leading and they want to come and follow me? And I will talk a bit more about the difference between managers and leaders. Is that something you can teach or you just have to push people towards that moment? I call that what you were then, a reluctant leader. And I've seen this many, many, many times, including myself, you know, the reluctant leaders, we don't want to, like, often we're shy or just, you know, we don't want to put our egos or whatever. It's not about me, 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 get me on that stage. Yeah, Those are the ones that I kind of think, okay, they're the ones that are more difficult to like, okay, it's not all about you. So the reluctant leader um, is the one. And I, and I actually think the reluctant leader starts to become a great leader because they, remember I used the, the, the verb to champion. Sort of earlier on so it is that sense that you know it's not about ego because you want to be front center and you're all that there's something it's about and reluctant leaders that they always look behind them first like you did it's at that moment it's like no I don't want to surely and there's that moment that pause when it's like do I have to? this is what I do for me when it's up it's like oh, do I have to really really do I you know and then you do it because you know that no one else is going to do it and this has got to be done. Yeah, it's either something that's got to be said or done. And that is powerful. And that actually seems to grow with some people to that point. So, you know, a lot of my work with these people will be about developing their inner confidence, about how to communicate all that because, you know, there's a shyness. Just to complete that, so I grew out of my reluctant leader phase. I remember being in a long queue at Heathrow in immigration, and I saw there was a desk up there with no line but a person there. So I literally went, okay, let's go, and commanded <laughs> 300 people. And anyway, so I, I grew out of my reluctant leader phase. It's like, we're doing this, follow. <laughs> but also, of course, the point is you've got to remember that there's followership. <laughs> and, and I'd never met these people. They blindly followed this crazy Australian storming the immigration desk. It was funny. So enough about me. It's back onto what you're doing. I just thought I'd share those because they were, they were fresh in my mind. There was a teaching moment. You obviously work with teams and individuals. How do you change your approach between working one-on-one -on -one and then with teams to affect change? Often what I'll do is I'll work with an individual who will be a team leader and then he or she will bring me, you know, will work with his or her leadership team. Um, so that's always interesting doing that. So I was thinking about this because, of course, there's a difference, but probably fundamentally there isn't because it with each, whether it's about you're in a team or with, with you know, individually, it's very much about starting with yourself. Leadership has been for quite a few years now. It's not about doing unto others. It's about starting with yourself. That's the real challenge. It's very exposing being a leader, yeah? Being, and I'm talking about good, great leaders, yeah? So from that place, it's always with starting yourself. So whether you're going to be one-to-one, -one, as I start with a, a client or with a team, it's all about starting with yourself. And there are questions that I ask to get you to start to go inwards. The difference with working with a team is that what I can also do is do a lot of encouraging them to support, challenge, work with each other. So it's not just between me and that that person. But 
probably fundamentally, there isn't a great difference. Of course, I love my one-to-one clients, but I deeply love my teams. One of the major, in terms of big shifts and making that meaningful change, is it's one thing for, like, if you and I, now you were my client, you know, you began, yeah, yeah, but it's Hannah saying, so what does that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But when you hear someone else, particularly who might be a work colleague, someone that, you know, might be your boss even or whatever, someone that you deeply admire, respect, start to be very open, connect, start to be willing to take the risk to change. That is so much more impactful than anything I can say. How have you had to adapt your delivery style during two years of lockdown? Fortunately, I was doing online digital for quite a few years before. With some of my international clients, I wasn't always hopping on a plane. So it wasn't like, oh, my goodness, how do I do this? That that was a major um, – and I, even working with, with one of my teams in Switzerland, I, again, a lot of my work actually increasingly has been with digital – I mean, what they said, their field is this digital transformation. So I've been over the years having to make that adjustment anyway. So with individual clients, um, it wasn't such a, a shift, except um, some of my clients 24-7 with their own teams on screen, they did not want their precious coaching time to be yet another. It was like, no, no, no. So with my London clients, you have no idea to snow through rain, Regent's Park, Kensington, you know, Hyde Park, walks and talks, all weathers through these two years. And some still want to do it. You know, they don't want to be in the office. They want to because they love it and, and to be out. So with individual clients, it wasn't such. But with teams, I, I had deep th- thoughts about, do I want to try and do this digitally? I tried once and it just, and I thought, no, no, no. I actually thought it was more going to be more, if I'm honest, damaging to my reputation. Because I thought I'm not going to get the same quality out of this working with a team because it's so much about trust and people not feeling it's being recorded or whatever. So I decided to pause with that one. I am about to do, uh, again, at LBS, London Business School, a uh, training for me, which is about working digitally with teams. You know, so I think that's going to be interesting. So lovely segue, because I want to ask you, have you seen that leaders need different skills to lead distributed and remote teams? Actually, I've heard that introverts make better remote leaders. What have you seen? So I'm on the introvert-extrovert scale. I'm I'm absolutely in the middle. I used to think I was more of an introvert. I actually think probably my authentic self is much more extrovert than than I I kind of realise. but I'm laughing because introverts have loved being being on on screen uh, to do the virtual. You know, it's like fantastic. They don't have to have this connectivity. They don't have to to have intimacy in the same way because it isn't the same. Yeah, I think it's been. I know this is quite what you're asking, Andrew, but it's been extraordinary that we were able. You know, another time it would have been a very different story, but that we were so many of us were able to 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 go online, but. It's not the same. So for introvert leaders, yes, but <laughs> I deeply believe in, you call it distributed working, hybrid working, whatever we're calling it. I deeply believe that that's the way that's going forward. So anyone that's hiding full time behind the screen as a leader, they've got a problem. Anecdotally, I've got a wide circle of friends. They've said that it's either a 2-3 or a 3-2. Options to stay at home permanently have now been removed. They say, we want you back in the office. I kind of have no problem with that. I I think it's great to have choice. But I think if someone just wants to be at home all the time when they could be in the office, that maybe masks some other issue they've got. 
one of the key issues over these two years and ongoing has been the whole issue about working in lockdown it was easy it was like yeah that there was no choice was there but it was as we were coming out it was do we go hybrid how does this work and people making decisions like it'd be permanently you know working from home so they move house or whatever but I think this has been ongoing I think there's a lot of health around this I think to have both is really important um the introvert in me was going was, was getting very frustrated with open plan uh, offices and my clients, you know, senior leaders who needed to have some deep thinking space and just noise all the time coming at them. And they, and so what was happening is they were getting to the office really, really early or staying and or staying really late to do that strategic thinking time. I do think going forward, this is, there's a lot of positives happening to have a more intelligent way of doing this. And I don't think anyone's got the answer, and, and I'm looking at this very closely because clients ask me all the time and I'm seeing it happen. But one associated issue is that of presenteeism, where if you're not in the office, then you're not present and we need to measure your effectiveness. During lockdown, a couple of my friends who shall remain nameless, but two of them actually have listened to this story on the podcast, hello, they bought mouse wigglers. Now, a mouse wiggler, if you don't know what it is, it's a USB stick that simulates your mouse moving. So if it says that you've gone offline because you've walked away from your computer, this simulates you moving the mouse a little bit and then basically says, oh, you're still online. Because they wanted their bosses to not think, well, actually, I need a mental health break. I need to go to the shops. I need to do my washing. But if you're not there, not present, then you're not working. I've seen this creep in. I've even seen discussions about the male-female divide getting worse. Where do you sit on this whole issue of presenteeism? And if you're in the office certain days a week, you might not get promoted. It's a huge topic. We could do a whole podcast on this. What's your view? This was being discussed pre-pandemic. You know, it was it was the, about flexi hours, about people working. For, this is a massive and what I would call enlightened companies and this would be globally, were absolutely looking at this and being much more. And it all comes down, in a way, to talent. And again, my field is leadership, so I kind of focus on that. So it is about how to keep, retain, attract talent. So they drive practices, don't they? So if the talent are going, no, 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 we're not going to stay stuck, you know, because before this is going back, uh, it was very much about presenteeism is that what you're calling it so it was the jacket behind the, the chair wasn't it and it was never about assessing whether someone was great in terms of output it was not about smart thinking or output at all it was just about and that did very much disadvantage women and again parents and fathers who were who were doing a lot of, of parenting um massively it was it was one of the big issues so Again, the pandemic, there's been some extraordinarily positive things that are still coming out from that at this time. Um, and one of them is as thinking more intelligently and how we measure um, output and all of that. So it's, I, I think, the old way of just being there and not actually really kind of contributing much or whatever, I hope, is really being questioned and is going. I think it feels very old-fashioned now. I saw a great interview on your website from, I think, one of your clients, Scott, and he had a great quote. He said, great teams are the envy of every organization. And a quick aside, at IBM in the, the old South Bank building, we didn't have assigned desks. So I would literally get there every morning at seven o'clock, put jumpers down with six or eight seats so I could have my team in the same spot. And we can't address the air until I got in trouble and was written to by facilities management saying you can't keep things there. But people would literally walk past our area. We were running a social collaboration team and they'd say, how do I join Andrew's team? They're always having 
having fun. They're always happy. They're always talking. They get a lot of work done. So how do you encourage leaders to create teams that others want to join? One thing I realized uh, probably about three years ago, I was looking at each of my clients and they are in different sectors. Yeah, They're in finance, creative, pharmaceutical. They might be NGOs, uh, entrepreneurs, whatever. So, and, and again, different countries. And, they, and I was looking at the commonality between them. And the commonality, there are many commonalities, but one of the key ones was their deep belief in teams, in creating great teams as the foundation to their success. And as I worked with them, they would go from one job to another or one company to another. And each time, the first thing they did was create a great team. And this wasn't just, yes, of course, it's one part of their core values, but they knew that they got that great team right and then success would follow. Um, And they believed it passionately and would even go into companies that didn't have this concept at all. Uh, but they would kind of challenge, and that's where a lot of change would come from. And it worked each time. So what Scott was saying, it's a great interview, isn't it, uh, Scott Satriano, is this concept about it's not about being nice or, hey, let's just make sure everyone likes to come to work and have fun. It's actually, it's that that bonding again. And it's that, that having your, this is another phrase that, that one of my, my clients says, what's really important is for people to have his back upwards which doesn't always happen but for him as a leader it's his number one value that he has his teams back massively important you talked in one of your posts about coming out of a dark ward after the first phases of lockdown in 2020 the world changed for us all so what did you learn about how you adapted and how did this influence the advice you now give to those that you coach when i'm teaching i talk about the transformational curve and this is uh this is a point when we are on our knees it's, it's the, 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 the 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 base of this 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 curve, but it's the point of surrender. Um, and it's a very, this is the dark wood. This is the very dark. And I have been there Andrew, many times in my life. We don't create, um, I've always been a change agent. I've always been involved myself with transformational change, which is my work is, is so, so involved with that now. So we don't get to what I call my free to soar place, the free to soar. It's that wonderful flying place, unless we are willing to go through that. And this point we get to, these dark woods, um, this dark, dark point, it's never by choice, ever. That's the tough news. It's not like, oh, yeah, we'll pee. I'm going to go there because I want the outcome. Life happens. It can be a death of someone. It can be all sorts. It was a global uh, what happened to all of us with the pandemic. And from that dark wood, and I found myself in the early pandemic, um, complete isolation. I was, my world is, I live in London. Um, I, I live on my own. Um, it's, it's you know, my my family's, I mean, it, that I was completely on my own. So when people were happily on screen talking about, oh yeah, it's a bit boring having to be in isolation with all family members around, I was like, no, no, no. You don't, and this actually happened a lot for Londoners and for New Yorkers. It was huge because a lot of us, we do live on our own, which is why we go out a lot, why we have, I call a very rich tapestry of life, which is why we're having such fun now because we can, you know, and this is both in terms of our personal lives, but also professionally. We are out there, we're networking, we're creating, we're developing. It's why we choose those of us who choose to live either in the metropolises, London, New York, whatever, it's why we do what we do. So to suddenly have that, that isolation was brutal. 
and it was a dark wood. Everything was immediately got cancelled. It was there was everyone panicked. It was just an iPhone. We weren't allowed to visit each other. It was complete, um, and it was about three four months, wasn't it? It was brutal. So from but lots of learnings came from that, and I say that's not the first time in my life I've been in that dark wood. And what I've learned, and I teach this now, is so much richness comes from this place if we allow ourselves to to move and actually what what happens it was sue we talked about sue before but it was sue who who was the catalyst for me pushing me out of my own that that point um because she called me and she said hannah you've got to start writing again you've got to to start this and i said no 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 like you know no one wants to listen to me um everyone's on zoom or whatever just you know spouting out what have i got to say so she didn't have anything, you know, it was like, you've just got to do it. So I did. And the first post I, uh, article I wrote was uh, creativity out of a crisis. It was kind of that, that's what I wrote about. And what happened from then is I began to chronicle the, the pandemic and what was going on and the energy and the moods. And, and that actually, I would say, was one of the things that really saved me because I had a purpose. There was a point of what I was doing. Um, and I began, you know, it wasn't, this wasn't just about being asleep or watching Netflix all the time. There was something for me to do, which I think matters enormously to me. It was a difficult time, but so many teaching moments. And I think we've come out the other side. I think everyone that I've met has come out of it stronger and they've learned a lot about themselves and they were forced to, they were forced to look inward because that's the way the world was. Exactly. That was a real invitation. I love that. Yeah, it was an invitation. I want to talk about personal brand. A couple of reasons. I have a view on it. Cheryl Sandberg from Facebook says that people don't have brands. Companies do. If you look at personal brand, I remember talking to folks at EY about the notion of eminence, that people go beyond the personal brand and the self-promotion. They actually are very useful to their organization. So where do you sit on the notion of personal brand and what do you advise your individual clients about it? Well, I used to hate that term. It's a bit like personal marketing. And I find a lot of clients who take it, but we're in a world where that talks about brand. And what I did learn is that actually, like like with all words, language, it, it's about intent and what we mean by it. Yeah. So personal brand, what I mean by this, it's about your authentic inspirational presence. It's about really having that sense. And actually, two core questions, I love my question, uh, is is who am I? And that's about, you know, that understanding yourself also increase your values and, and things, yeah? And the second question is, what do I want out of my life? Which is what our personal vision is. So that's, again, I think, as I said before, it's about, you know, we always start with ourselves as leaders. It's like, so asking these two, because if you don't know who you are, you don't know what you want, then you can't begin to inspire um, others to, to follow you. So, so this got me starting to think about this personal brand and it's really about your personal vision and values and then that's like understanding that inside but it's no good if it's just locked inside so one of the key things that has changed definitely for leaders with technology with media communication with all of this is we have to learn how to communicate you know it's not about being egotistical it's not about anything it's just commun- it's all about communication so so when i frame it like that my clients go oh yeah yeah personal brand they'll get it i had to reframe things so i would come off stage and people would say that was a wonderful talk and i was early in my career like oh aren't i great i'm fantastic and now i've reframed it as that thank you very much that's a performance you saw and that's why you paid me but what will you do differently so i look at my personal brand and someone said what's your why the whole simon's anything is to teach 
So I scour the world learning about all these things so you don't have to. And then in 25 or 45 minutes, I tell you what you need to know for this particular topic. And hopefully it's useful. So I'm more happy where people go, that really made me think, or I disagree with you. Hallelujah. Let's have a discussion. I've had to reframe that in terms of where do I add the value? And my personal brand is that I'm an educator, much as you are, but the style I educate is in that something will stick and you will go away from there and you'll take action where you wouldn't normally. And that for me is my ROI. It's the succinctness of that, isn't it? And it's being able to communicate. It's what we used to call the elevator pitch, all of that. And once we start to have websites, once we start, and also, you know, we're talking with different generations and it's important that we, we become, we're able to have this language and yeah. So like a lot of things, my views have changed. So professional education, we both worked with London Business School and Holt Business School, which is another bit of serendipity. Is education changing as we move to these more distributed working teams and the impact of technology? How is education and the delivery of it changing that you've seen? Universities, colleges that weren't digital were really in problem, you know, having problems. But, uh, and you'll have experienced this probably with, with uh, because we've both been at London Business School and Holt. So for years, and I still do some work in London Business School, but for years it was very much my, you know, my key, key work. And then I, I was asked to, to work at Holt. And that was, this was about six years ago. Now, London Business School then almost had no, I mean, it was, it really was chalk and talk. It, it you know, I, I, I think there was maybe a, a screen, but not, not very much at all. I went to Holt and my goodness, um, you know, teaching in front of like 50 students. Uh, it was my education. I had to learn very fast about how to go digital. Now, they were in person, but I had to use all the different. So it didn't matter if they were in the room or virtual. Back in 1994, when I was doing my Master of Engineering, it was a joint venture back in Australia between the three universities. And so what they did, and this was groundbreaking back at the time, they gutted three laboratories, so the poor old chemical students had no more laboratory. They fitted them out as a tele-teaching lab. So imagine curved desk, 20 seats, each with a, a gooseneck microphone, and they had a pan and tilt camera at the top of the room. So I turn my microphone on, and the camera zooms in and points to me. And we actually linked together the three campuses. So the lecturer might have been in campus one, and, and the other students would be in campus one, two, and three. At the time, it was revolutionary. What amazes me, people now going back to work with their laptop in separate meeting rooms because they haven't got Zoom rooms. And so you've got half the people online and half the people are in the office. We did this back in 1994. Is that where things have to move? So that if we assume, as you've said, that we'll always have some people that are online, some people will be in the room, the technology in the room has to give a great experience as well. Definitely. It can't just be, yes. I think there's a lot of learning. These organizations will adapt. You know, they're really good at adapting and adapting fast or they sync. It, it is that. So so it's moving very fast and, the, and there's some very bright brains on it to, to make that shift. I need to introduce you to one of my other guests, Lynn Gribble, who was an educator at University of New South Wales in Australia, and she specialises in online learning. And I often go to her as a go-to advice. I must connect the two of you. So back to you. Can you share your proudest moment where you've affected real change with one of your clients? It's really hard to choose one. I get very kind of involved and invested and, and champion my clients. This isn't about external change. You know, one of the, the joys of my work is transformational inner change. And then the output uh, happens. So I've seen many personal, you know, the weddings, the, the children, the successes, whatever. Um, but I think there's, there's one phrase that one of my clients, and he's very happy for me to share this because he says it to everyone. He, 
when he when he chose to work with me, and he thought he thought quite a few weeks whether he wanted to because it can be a bit scary. You know, when we talk about transformational change, this isn't you've got to start to look look at yourself. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't sure he wanted to do this, but then he kind of went, "Yep, yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to do this." And he said to me, "Hannah, I want to work with you because I want to become a better leader, but you're also going to teach me how to become a better man." And I thought of that phrase and I thought with all my clients, the one that, that they completely invest, they get in there. And this is the joys that it, it isn't only the external successes, professional successes, whatever, which of course are great. But it's the, that and it is the, the, the deeper personal happiness that starts to. But even beyond that, it, 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 they start to change in terms of who they are themselves. And they become more their authentic self. They become they they they, and that to me is when I start to see that and what happens. That that brings me great joy. So, what would you be doing if you hadn't started Cascade eighteen years ago? Oh, that's a really good question. Goodness knows. Well, you see, I have so many colleagues who are still at London Business School because that was was kind of the what what that my life was doing um and it was great you know we were going all over the world i was i was a coach it was it was fantastic i felt that was the the pinnacle of of my career um and it was just that life had other other plans for me um and and took me on this trajectory as i call it um but i think i probably would be oh i don't know because I, I now do things like these podcasts or videos, and I was terrified of doing these. So I, I, I think it would have just been more different adventures, I think. So here's another way of asking that question. What would your eight-year-old self think of you? Did you read my article? I did. I'm being cheeky. That provoked a huge change for me when I asked when I was 39, and I, and I thought, what would she think? And I didn't think she'd like me very much. I think she'd love me. I think she'd, she'd laugh with me. She'd, um, she'd dance with me. I think she'd be really proud of me, actually. Who guides you through your personal change and growth? How do you keep your growth in check and on course? Before, as a coach, I was a psychotherapist. I trained psychotherapists. So a lot of all that training I bring into my work with my clients. And one of the key tenets is you have to be ongoing, uh, looking after yourself. Self-care, huge, huge, huge. Um, And also part of that is that you aren't, you know, as we are seeing with a certain leader at the moment, isolated leadership causes great harm. Yeah. So we have to be open to feedback, check, challenge, all of that. So I have my own coach. I've been with Mary. I've been with her for 10 years. She's fantastic. Uh, I have an amazing inner circle. Um, I call them my greatest champions and my greatest critics um, or toughest critics. So, so it, I love that. And, and I can be completely open with them and so I do, I, you know, our inner circle is huge. So almost out of time. So I want to run you through a quick fire round where a quick answer is a good answer. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Window or aisle? Window. Online or in the room? In the room. What's the app you use most on your phone? The one I use most is City Mapper. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It was when I was agonizing about resigning from a, a job that it was kind of like, you know, one of those dream jobs, what you were supposed to do. I was 26 and my wonderful boss, and I was feeling so guilty about it uh, to go to something else. And he said, Hannah, I want you to remember right throughout your career that you are merely a cog in the machine. The machine will carry on. Don't ever sacrifice yourself and your desire, your dreams, really. 
And that was wonderful advice. What are you reading at the moment? I read lots. I get sent lots and lots and lots of things. So I think it's it. And I, and I think the, the one that I, I sort of always keep coming back to is Women Who Run With The Wolves. I first read this 20 years ago. And it's by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who's a Jungian psychotherapist. And basically, she works with different myths. And it's about the development of women and different stages from girl right through that we go through. And she she takes a myth and then she analyzes it. It's fantastic. Men could read it too and learn a lot as well. As this is the Actionable Futurist podcast, what three actionable things should our audience do today when it comes to developing their own champion mindset? So first of all, I talked about self-care. And after these two years ongoing, self-care has become actually for all my clients the number one priority. We can't be there for others if we're not looking after ourselves. So the first one is our physical and psychological well-being. Huge, yeah? Um, the, the next one is asking ourselves what makes our hearts sing. It's not being selfish. It's not being, uh, you know, in the face of people being in, in dreadful situations. Again, it's part of that looking out for ourselves and after ourselves, we, we can give to others. So, so enjoying, you know, allowing ourselves to do this. Um, and actually things is, I would say that mindset, it is about being open to learning, open to growing. Every time we catch ourselves judging, tight energy, all that, Breathe through it. No, 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 no. And be open. How else? Be open to thinking and questioning. So how can people find out more about you and your work? They can go to my website, www.cascad.co.uk. Hannah, a great discussion today. It's been fascinating hearing your insights. Even more fascinating becoming your friend and meeting you through Sue. And, and I think you're a bundle of energy. I know you're much loved. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've loved it, Andrew. Loved it. Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast.